and uh, grab your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to reverse the schedule that we normally do here in the mornings and we're going to dig into God's Word now and we're going to follow that up with some response in song and then also communion time together this morning. And it's so good to see you, have you here. I think about half our church is down in Orlando at uh, Disney World on this uh, beginning of uh, fall break for the kids. We are thrilled you are here. We're in Mark chapter 6. Well, last Sunday, uh, we kind of went through a passage that was uh, all on the table. Uh, We need to put it all on the table. Um, We should all be willing to die for Christ type of a passage with uh, uh, John and his in uh, his incarceration and his execution. Heavy text last Sunday. I just want for you to know this Sunday, we're really kind of jumping into a text that is none of us have arrived to that kind of a text. It's the type of text where we're all growing in this together and be encouraged by that. Uh, so today is just a we are all here together. And the reality is we are all ordinary people And ordinary people struggle to understand the extraordinary. The ordinary struggles to understand the extraordinary, and especially when it comes to understanding our extraordinary God and Savior, and uh, we're learning more about it. One of the cool things about that, though, is our extraordinary Jesus Christ understands that we struggle to understand him as normal uh, people. And uh, how, what hope that gives us. Just think about that, that out of his love, out of his understanding, what he does in light of the fact of understanding that you and I struggle to understand his extraordinariness is he pushes into us. And he uses life to help us to see his extraordinariness. And we're going to see that happen. And we're all in that process of learning together. And we're going to join 12 other ordinary people who are in that process as well uh, with the Lord. One other thing with that. uh, The Lord is not just trying to amaze and awe us. Okay, he's not just trying to do that only. Um, anyone can be awed and amazed. I mean, the reality is we can be awed and amazed by food. I mean, we can be awed and amazed by someone's skill or by a building or or a place we visited or something like that. Uh, But the reality is, is it's to get past awe and amazed. In other words, awe and amazed is supposed to take us to some place. And we're supposed to go somewhere. And ultimately, you see here two people on the screen who are kind of looking odd and amazed. And ultimately, I'm asking the question, have they taken it past odd and amazed? Or are they just hanging there odd and amazed? Uh, It's supposed to go past that. It's to move beyond that. Ultimately, when we come to the scriptures, the gospel of Mark, uh, so much so, is pressing into us, helping us to ask a Christological question. And the question, the Christological question is this. Who is this Jesus and what in the world is he doing? That's where all of this is pushing us. The awe and amaze is to take us there. Who is this Jesus and what is he up to? Well, we're going to dig into that Mark chapter 6. Let me pray and we're going to go. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. You are extraordinary. You you are just beyond comprehension. And that's one of the realities. Sometimes it's so hard for us. We are ordinary people. And ordinary people struggle to understand the extraordinary you. So Lord, I would pray right now with activities from the week, with the things going on in our life, I pray we would be all in right here in your word with you right now. Lord, I even pray that we would bring the struggles of life in here this morning so that as we go to your word, we would see what you're doing with those in our lives. Lord, we're here, ordinary peeps, and we need your help. So show us more of you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, as ordinary people, putting it all on the table, let's dig into our text. In in Mark 5, 6, in chapter 6, okay, here we go. All right, verse 30, let's pick it up. 
the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pause there. Let me just kind of put the context of it. We are in the movement that started in the beginning of the chapter, uh, verses 7 through 13. Jesus sends the 12 out. Remember that? Remember? And so he sends them out. He sends them out two by two. He gives them authority. He gives them uh, ability, a capacity, and capability to do what he's asked them to do. He sends them out. They go out. Uh, we then had last Sunday that text from verse 14 to verse 20. Of John going on heavy stuff heads will roll when we go out and proclaim the gospel and we're not talking about other people's heads We're talking about our own Uh, That could be that and then we come back and now they've returned from their adventure their journey that Jesus sent them on Uh, How long have they been away on this journey? I don't know. I don't know if this was days I don't know if this was a week if this was a few weeks, but they come back from this This is the first time he sent them out So i'm just sure jesus is just like I can't wait for this time with these guys And so they come back, uh, he tells them, uh, and they tell him all that he had done and taught. Man, would have loved to be in on that meeting, but Mark keeps on moving. So here we go, verse 31. And so Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Why does he say that? Keep on going. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. I mean, that'd give an idea. People are everywhere around them. They couldn't even talk. They couldn't even eat with all the hubbub. So verse 32, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. By the way, what kind of a place? A desolate place. Okay, let's pause here just for a little bit uh, with what's going on. Here we are. They return. Jesus says to them, hey, let's retreat. There's so much hubbub going on. Let's retreat, have some time away, and, and talk about what took place. Now, now know this. We're on vacation time here on the west side of Indianapolis, big time, uh, with uh, school set up right now. And, and I'm all about vacation. Vacations are good things, right? And, and in the scripture, there's a principle of rest. Uh, in fact, when God created things, he's like, work six days and rest one. And uh, uh, so rest is a good thing. But I want to keep it in the context of the passage here. This is not a verse to use for proof texting, take vacation. Take vacations. That's awesome. But this is a verse that is in the context of doing ministry work. This is in the context of they've just been out there, they've been doing ministry work, and now Jesus says, hey, let's have some ministry rest. Here's the idea how I would kind of summarize it up. Ministry rest follows being ministry wiped from doing ministry work. Ministry rest follows being ministry wiped uh, as a result of doing ministry work. If you go the other way, when we do ministry work, by the way, all of life should be for the glory of God. All of life is a ministry opportunity, but here's the deal. We struggle to make all of life a ministry reality, okay? But yet when we're doing ministry work, tell you, folks, we all know working with people is exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm not sure if I should say anything because the people sitting next to me. (laughs) But it's just true. Working with people is exhausting in our own homes, uh, at work, uh, just all opportunities, even in church. It's just exhausting to do that. But I don't remember, guys, those of you who are at the Act Like Men conference last year sometime or whenever that was, and there was one of the speakers made the comment. He said, there's a good tired There should be a good tired in our lives where we come to the place where we're wiped out and we're tired, but we're tired because we've been doing what the Lord has asked us to do. And out of ministry work comes ministry wiped. And following that needs to be some ministry rest so that we can come back and do ongoing ministry work. Now, out of that, just a practical application, I want to throw this out. For some... Verse 31 with this idea of ministry rest means you need to go get some ministry rest. Around here, we even structure things to be able to do that. With small groups, we, we generally meet three out of four weeks. Why? Seriously. So one is a time you can have some rest. In our children's ministry, we structure some of the children's ministry so there's a rotating basis. Why is that? Because everybody knows if you've been around church very long, when you start in children's ministry, you are doomed there for eternity. And people need rest. And so we have that. And and so for some, and my wife is saying, Doug, are you listening to yourself? Uh, Get some ministry rest. Okay, that's okay. And that's really the focus. But I also in this, I want to point this out. That sometimes, for maybe for some, this is actually a reminder that you need to get at ministry work. 
There is something marvelous and glorious and God-honoring when we are working for the Lord and we get to that place where we're just literally, we're just wiped out. And it's like, bam, that's a good place to be because of all that's been happening in your life and extended from that. But then we have to do ministry rest as well. Let me keep on going. They return, they head on a retreat, they get away for some rest. Verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Okay, I love this. And I'm laughing about it because you got to get the scene in this. Uh, in the scene in this, they all come together and, and here they are. And then it's like people know they're there. And you know, remember Charlie Brown and Pigpen? You know, Pigpen's walking around and this maybe not politically correct nowadays, but there's always like this poor little kid. He's just dirty as all get out. And he's got dust everywhere following him. And it's kind of like that. Wherever Jesus and the disciples are going, there's dust everywhere because people are coming from all over the place to catch a load of him. And that's what's taking place. And they're like, we're trying to get away from people and you won't leave me alone. And and this dust is just like paparazzi happening here uh, with everything going on. Uh, it's a funny scene in it, but there's also, I just want to put this on the table so we know. Uh, Mark doesn't talk about it, so I don't want to make a major deal out of it. But it's important to understand part of what's going on in the context of this setting is a political nationalism issue. Uh, In that time, in fact, John chapter 6 is the story of what we're going to read here. Just a little bit about the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6 talks about it. And John says, the people, after seeing the miracle, were about to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. Okay? So understand, if you have the idea that people are following Jesus around just because he's like an amazing teacher and also because he's an amazing healer, you are right, but there's more to it than that. They're also following him around because in the time and the history and the day, they're like, we want this guy as king, especially here in a little bit because they're going to feed him. And so that's taking place here with this undergirding of what's happening. So what happens is they go to get this ministry rest and they're interrupted by people. Have you ever had that happen? Where it's like, I'm just trying to chill out. I just need some time away from people and people show up. And how do we normally respond? People stink. That's kind of just being frank about it. In our mindset, we're thinking that way. You are annoying me. You're you're an irritation. I wonder how Jesus is going to respond. Uh, When he went ashore, verse 34, he saw a great crowd. What kind of a crowd? A great crowd. And he was irritated with them. No. And he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. A couple things here. One, compassion. He's not annoyed. He's not disgusted. He's not angry. Also, compassion, by the way, is not a feeling-only thing. Pity is, sympathy is more so. Compassion is not an emotions-only thing. Compassion is also a knowledge thing. It's an action thing and a knowledge thing. Take a look here. What's the knowledge? Uh, What did Jesus say? He had compassion on them. Why? Because he saw them as something. What's the text say? He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, now, some of you may have more experience with sheep than I do. We had a few sheep for a while back in the day, so I got a little bit of experience with it. But, but sheep are one of those animals that are helpless on their own. They are absolutely helpless. You think they're so cuddly and they'll sit on your lap? Oh, they are skittish. They are helpless. They are directionless. They are naturally in trouble on their own. On their own, they are easy picking. They're total easy picking by any other animal. And they're naturally insecure almost. By the way, we are sheep. That's you and that's me. We are this way. We're skitterish. We're, we're, we're confused so often. Um, just this last, last night we watched, we had uh, DVR'd from uh, Friday, Amazing Race. We really liked that show. And in that show, they had one of the competitions was is the, the team is to take this about 10 sheep and move them through the down center through the, these fences on the side. And, and uh, so you watch these people and you watch these sheep and you're like, sheep are like so dumb. It's just like, go there. 
And they're like literally bouncing around. It's the most hilarious thing. And the people, they're not trying to hurt them. They're trying to help them some way. And they're just all over the place. And the people doing this are like, you are irritating. And it's like, that's us. That is us from the Lord's perspective. And that's what the Lord sees here. Compassion. He sees them sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? Well, this is what compassion does. Compassion does something about it. Compassion acts. So what does Jesus do? He began to teach them, not a few things, not a little bit. He began to teach them many things. It's interesting. Mark doesn't tell us what he taught them. But he just told them that he taught them many things. He knew their condition. He moved on what he saw. And he taught. Let me put a definition here for compassion. Throw this out on the table. Compassion is seeing a condition rightly. Compassion starts with seeing a condition rightly and then acting upon it because you have the capability and the capacity to help. Compassion is seeing a condition rightly and acting upon it because you have the capability and capacity to help. And here are sheep without a shepherd and there is the great shepherd right before them. And he's not irritated with them because they ruined their rest vacation. He's like, compassion? And he's like, let me teach you something. Jesus sees people rightly. He has the capability and the capacity to help them. That's what compassion is. And friends, that's what we're to do. When you connect this from the beginning of Mark chapter 6 to when Jesus sent the disciples out to proclaim, it, it involves compassion. I just want to ask you and I, as you think about life for you, When you see people at school or you see people at work, are they an irritation to you? Or is compassion a reality? People are hard to live with. People are hard to be around at times. And frankly, so are you and so am I. But are you a person of compassion? By the way, compassion is not just feeling emotion. Compassion is seeing and acting upon that because you have the capacity and capability to help them. Let me put it here this way. We need to see people biblically. We need to see people biblically. We need to see people biblically, and that means for the person without Jesus Christ, they are sinners separated from a holy God. And friends, sometimes we, we as uh, you know, followers of Christ can be in a place where we're like, goodness sakes, are those people stupid? Goodness sakes, are they doing wrong things? Why are we expecting unredeemed people to act biblically? That's bad theology. They are sheep without a shepherd and they are unredeemed sheep without a shepherd. And they need for you and I to be ones that are going out and proclaiming and loving on them. Jesus didn't come in and chew them out. He came in and loved on them and we don't see these sheep running from him. We see these sheep drawn into them. We need to see people biblically helpless and lost and confused. Also with that, we need to see ourselves biblically in it. Because we are sent out ones with the capability and the capacity given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the good news of Jesus to them. You can love on them because Jesus has loved on you. We need to see people biblically and we need to see ourselves biblically. Let's keep going. Verse 35. And when it grew late, by the way, this is probably at the time referring to say, let's say 3, 4, 5 p.m., in the afternoon, this would be the normal time of the day that the Jewish people would have their big meal of the day. So when it grew late, his disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, Jesus, uh, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Just pause for a sec. Bless their hearts. I, I think they are so helping here on their, in their own mind. They're coming and they're seeing this setting. By the way, we're going to learn that there's 5,000 men there. This is likely an event containing 15 to 20,000 people. Put that into perspective. Last year's average attendance for a Pacers game was 15,500 people. So just think of the stadium down there with people, 15,500 to 20,000 people. That's the crowd going on. And so what the disciples do is they see the crowd around there and they see it's getting late. In other words, it's getting towards the main dinner time. And what happens when people start getting hungry? We get crabby. 
and they're, they're in a desolate place and they see a problem. So they come to Jesus and they go, hey, Jesus, we're in a desolate place and it's getting late. Can I just put a frame of reference on that? Like he doesn't know that. Remember when we went through Colossians 1? He created all things. He created the desolate place. He created time and he created the people and he didn't need to be informed of that. It wasn't off his to-do list. And yet this is how we can be at times. Hey, Lord, just in case you were watching a commercial or you got distracted, let me tell you what's going on in my life. Hey, he's got it. Okay? Jesus doesn't need us Jesusing him. All right? He's got it. Just be encouraged by that. Remember that. Let's be humble about it. That's right. So it grows late. They're in a desolate place. Hours late, verse 36. And they say to him, hey, Jesus, uh, now that we've informed you of what's going on, uh, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. I don't think this was a snide statement. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. We don't know the tone. But you could read this in the kind of place where like, these people annoy me. And so there probably was some of that because they were going to get away. But in the reality, let's just take it on the best side of it. Let's just saying that they're really trying to send them out. Listen, they do have a serious problem on their hands. They have fifteen to 20,000 hungry people and they're in a desolate place. That's put in the text so that we understand there's no McDonald's right outside the gate. Okay, they are not in the stadium and with restaurants right outside. And they are about to have a problem and they are beginning to pick up what's happening in the situation and they are maybe irritated in it, but in it they're telling what's really happening here. Listen. The 12 are thinking we are in the wrong place at the wrong time. And friends, we're going to see here, Jesus is thinking, no, 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 no. You are in the exact right spot. And this is the exact right time because I have some things to teach you. Watch this. This is so cool. Watch the master disciple maker. Verse 37. But he answered them after they enlightened him so much. But he answered them. Hey, guys. That's in the Greek. Hey, guys, you give them something to eat. Can you just imagine that moment? Um, No. Uh, I don't think that's going to work. But Jesus says, hey, guys, you give them something. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? That's like a half year salary of bread and give it them to eat. Do you see how Jesus is pressing into them and they're realizing the absurdity of that reality? Hey guys, you give them something. I don't have anything to give them to eat. This is exactly what he's trying to do. Verse 38. And he said to them, well then how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they actually did it. (laughs) I wonder what kind of attitude they had. I can't believe we're looking for this stuff. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Okay. Verse 37. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They're like, are you crazy? We can't feed 15 to 20,000 people. And then Jesus said, well, then how, what do you have? Why don't you go and see? So they go and they, they go to their inventory and they do an asset count and they come back and they go, here, Jesus, we, in fact, we even printed it out on an Excel spreadsheet for you here. And here's what we got. We got five pieces of flat bread and we have two fish. That's it. The whole point of this is taking this to the place to where Jesus is right where he wants them. He wants them to understand that they have total inability to do anything about the situation in their life right now. They have 15 to 20,000 hungry people and they have total inability to do anything out of that. And that's right where Jesus wants them to be able to do ministry in and through them. Hey, friends, we have the tendency to be people, and we are to be responsible, and we are to be doers of things, no question about that, but we have the tendency in the reality of life, I will do things according to my ability first. And the Lord is 
pushing these guys to the place to where they are seeing, I am now in a circumstance where I have total inability to be able to resolve this. And again, the Lord is like, gotcha, right where I want you. He's pressing on them. He's pushing his fingers on them, getting them almost to the point of frustrated and hopeless, seeing their inability. And friends know this, Jesus does that with his peeps. And maybe he's doing that with you right now in your life. Maybe you are just in a circumstance where you're like, man, I just feel like the circumstance in my life right now is being so pushed and I have so much inability to be able, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried to resolve this. I've tried to turn this around. I've tried to make good out of this. Stop trying on your own. Stop trying in your own ability. And that's where we generally go. The Lord wants us in the place where we're available workers, but stuck in a place of needing his ability. And this is where they are at. So you give them something. They go, they give the spreadsheet out, but they missed a resource. They missed the resource of the guy standing right in front of them. And so it's understanding why they're in a place of feeling unable to do anything. But let me just kind of take the other angle of it. When are these guys ever going to get it? I mean, think about it. We've just so far in the first six chapters, we have seen these guys having firsthand accounts of Jesus healing people, of Jesus raising people from the dead, of Jesus commanding the wind and the sea, of Jesus casting out demons. And on top of that, they've even done miracles uh, when Jesus sent them out. And yet with all of that experience in their pocket, it seems like here, they've never had any of that. It's almost like they just met Jesus for the very first time. And in this, I just go, guys, come on. When are you going to see what you have been given and what you have been taught and what you have experienced? And when are you going to apply it to the situation? Man, does this not hit home with you and me? I mean, it's like for some, it's like, man, we have been given so much in Christ. We have been taught in Christ. We have experienced the Lord do many things. And yet we have forgotten so much so quickly. I mean, it's like at times, isn't it? It's like, I can't even remember what the Lord did earlier in the day, later in the day. And gives us hope because these guys aren't getting it either. And yet the Savior is so patient with them. Let me put this in kind of a, a lesson statement here. Here it is. Before I can see Jesus' ability, I must see my inability. Before I can see Jesus' ability, I need to see my own inability. And we live in a culture that is so the opposite of that. We live in a culture that says, you first need to see how awesome you are. No, no, no. That's the opposite of what scripture says. The scripture says we actually need to see how unable and incapable we are. And when we get to that point and we go face down, now we have hope because it's not about your ability. It's not about my ability. It's about the Lord's ability. And we need to see our own inability. And that's at times like we're going to see here with these two situations. The Lord puts us in scenarios to help us see our inability so that we can see his ability. Let's go to verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down. Okay, here's what goes on. He says, hey, yeah, you guys talk. You guys do something about it. And they're like, we can't do anything about it. Go get some loaves. They come back and they're like, he's like, okay, got you right where I want you. You're seeing your total inability. Now let me take charge and watch. So he starts. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. By the way, I just make this statement. That is so Mark, not just like grass, not brown grass, not dirt. This is just so Mark. He explains the scenery on green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. By the way, that had to take some time. You got 15,000, 20,000 people. And it's like, okay, you know, it's herding sheep, herding cats. It's like, okay, let's get all organized together. And so they do that. Verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. I know it was not a rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub blessing. 
Uh, What he said is so intriguing, we don't know. I'm just saying, I wonder, did the disciples hear him? Or was this just a thing between him and the Spirit and the Father? It could have been. Or is this the kind of thing with what he just said, the 12 are hearing him? Man, I would have loved to have heard that. Or is this the kind of thing that he's looking at heaven and he's saying it loudly so, frankly, all the people could hear? Well, we're not quite sure in the situation, but, but that's what he does. So he, broke, he, he said a blessing and he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Friends, this is a strategic disciple-making move right here. He could have had anybody do it. But what's Jesus doing is we've been following him with the disciples. He's now putting more and more literally in their hands. And now it's not just Jesus having it out, but he's having his men, his men he's trained to ultimately take over. He's having them span it out. Why? So they have hands-on experience. They can see it happening right before them. So they go, he gave them, they set it before the people and he divided the two fish among all the people. I mean, how could he do that? That's like a micro. (laughs) Two fish? Uh, it, it, It was a miracle. And they all ate and were satisfied And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Mm. You know, we could take a look at this and talk and try and explain the whole miracle. You know, for instance, Jesus gives the disciples a basket with a part of a piece of bread. And maybe when he prays, maybe they close their eyes. Because we know you have to close your eyes when you pray, right? <laughs> so maybe while their eyes are closed and they're praying and then all of a sudden pfft, it just multiplies. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's the kind of thing where they take it, someone grabs and that one's gone and there's always like one piece of bread in there all the time, but it just keeps like multiplying right there. I don't know how it happened and here's the point. And when we get to the point where we try and explain how it happened, it no longer becomes a miracle. Here's the fact. It was a miracle. He fed 15 to 20,000 people with five flat pieces of bread and two fish. And here out of this, here is the question. Was everybody amazed? Yes. Was everybody awed? Yes. But here's the question. It's a Christological question. Out of it, did everybody come to the place where they were asking the question, who is this guy and what is he up to? That's the question. And so out of this were people amazed, totally he was. It was a miracle and that requires us to go, who is this Jesus and what is he up to? By the way, in a note, it's so interesting how Mark, the human author of the text, ends it. He doesn't tell us hardly anything would happen from there. No further information on what happened with the people in the event from there. We're not told about any further teaching. We're not told if they did an altar call. We're not told if they did a closing song. We're not told if at the end of all this, Jesus said, you are loved. Okay? (laughs) That's a thing we do around here. Uh, But in that, we're not told any of that. But we are told that Jesus did something that should amaze and awe us, but not leave us there. You have to ask the question, who is this guy and what is he up to? That's what's going on here. By the way, just a comment. In all of this, the disciples were not the manufacturers. They were the distributors. It's a business term view on this. The disciples were distributors. Jesus was the manufacturer. And as sent out ones, it's no different. We are distributors. We are not the manufacturer. He is. We plant, polish watered, God gives the growth. Well, look at verse 45, and there's one word there. Tell me, what is that word? Immediately. Immediately. Okay, around here, this is now, every time we read immediately in the Gospel of Mark, after we read that, everybody goes, bam, because it kind of reminds us of the, the quickness of things here. And so the word immediately is right there in verse 45 to join the prior text of the events to immediately something else happened here. By the way, this is the 23rd time this word has been stated so far in the gospel. That's a lot of times. And so let me read it. Ready? Here we go. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. 
So here's, after this miraculous afternoon, Jesus is displaying himself of his total ability and their total inability, and then he sends them sailing. Why? I think there's a couple options for this. Why did he immediately send them away? Well, one, if you remember out of John 6, right after this miracle, John tells us that the people wanted to come and like capture Jesus and force him to be king. Listen, Jesus knows what's going on. And I think part of this is like, listen, my guys, they're not ready to handle this yet. So it's like, guys, I'm going to send you away. I'll take care of closing up the service. Okay, and it's like, get out of here because you're not in a place where you're ready to process this, handle this whole thing. I think they're also sent along with that because there's some further learning that they need to do. Look at verse 52 in the passage, just down a little bit. It says, for they did not understand about the loaves. Do do, do you see that? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We'll talk about that in just a moment here. But, but they were not connecting the dots. In other words, were they amazed? Yes. Were they awed? Yes. Did they understand what the whole deal was? And Jesus is kind of like, okay, I'm going to send you guys off. I'll take care of this situation. I'm going to send you off because you've got some more to learn. And that's so the way the Lord works with us, guys. Just more to learn, more to learn. So he sends them off. Why does Jesus go up and pray? Why does he pray by himself? Well, I can only just make a guess at that. One, he just did ministry to 15 to 20,000 people. That's a time to pray. Father, do a work. Do a work in those people. May they ask the question. May they see who I am and what I am about. On top of that, he's praying for the 12. Lord, you know Father, these guys aren't getting it. Lord, help them. By the way, they are now in a situation on the water where a storm's going to come up. Remember that one in Mark chapter 4? Jesus was in the boat then. Now he's not. Face down praying for those dudes. Okay, because now they're kind of on their own. Again, it's just moving in the discipling reality. Verse 47 uh, or 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up into the mountains to pray. And when evening came, the boat with the disciples out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Okay, so there they are going. This is late. Uh, they're out there. Now, there's two ways, this, two things that could be happening. Or how does Jesus know that they're having a hard time? Well, one is because he's the creator of all things, and he knows what's going on. The other potential option in this is uh, being out in that area in the Sea of Galilee. You can actually see a little ways out. Uh, I mean, even a good ways out. But part of the problem with that is it's at night. So it's probably dark. In this, Jesus knows exactly what's going on with his people. I just bring that up to encourage you. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, painfully. I mean, have you ever been in a boat where you're like against the wind? Uh, By the way, the text tells us for the wind was against them. Have you ever been in a boat like that where you're going and you don't have a motor? You know, they did not have gas. I don't know if you knew that. They did not have gas, you know, and the whole engine thing on the back. You know, they're like sail and they're like, you know, stroke, stroke, stroke kind of a thing. And they're having a hard time making it anywhere. By the way, we're going to see here in just a minute that some events start happening at 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning. That means they were out on the water going nowhere for a long time. A long time. It, it, it would take a maximum of two hours to normally go across. With the wind, okay, maybe a little longer. But we get the picture here. They ain't getting nowhere. They're just trying to stay where they're at. Stroke, 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 stroke. And what happens with your mindset and your attitude after you get frustrated with like that after a while, huh? It's like, I want to throw this oar in the water and I want to kill everybody. <laughs> you just get to that point. You're so pressed to the point where, let me make, remind you of it this way. You're reminded of your total inability. Again. And they're out there, they can't even beat the wind. And so what does Jesus do? He sees this is going on. It's about uh, the fourth watch of the night. That's the 3 to 6 a.m. when this is doing. So what does he do? He leaves them alone and he just lets them suffer? No. He came to them walking on the sea. Who can do that? By the way, walking on the sea, if it's like really windy and you're having a hard time getting anywhere, the sail's up or it's, you know, the wrong way type of thing, it sails down and then you're just stroke, stroke, stroke and the waves are going right. How does he walk on the water? I mean, is it like up and down and 
you know, on the water? Or does, when Jesus comes and he steps in and it's just like, does he have a nice smooth thing going on? And imagine just the reality of that, just kaboom, and you can walk on the water. Hey, this he is the Colossians 1-1. This is the one who controls all of physics. And he can make it so that water can be walked on. And that's the one that this is. There's a Christological reality behind all this. He came to them walking on the sea. And then this interesting statement, he meant to pass them by. He meant to pass them by. Was, was he going to, some say he was going to go to the other, all the way over to the other side and wait for them and have things ready with a fire breakfast or whatever. Was he going to come in front of them and kind of like show them, you know, how, whoa, hey, amazed and odd. Or there's a whole nother theory that I think is kind of interesting out of the Old Testament, this concept of this idea of God is going to pass by and show his glory. The terminology could fit that. That maybe what was going on is in this whole thing, the Lord Jesus Christ was going to walk by for the purpose of showing them his glory. Who can do that? So we, we see this event happening. He's passing by verse 49. But when he saw them, why? But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Well, it makes sense. You're kind of like, didn't you recognize him? Listen, when you're that tired, that exhausted, and you got a bad attitude, <laughs> you're not in the clearest of mindset to see everything correctly. They are at their end. And so they thought it was a ghost. They cried out for they saw him and were terrified. But number 24, immediately he spoke to them and said, you doofuses. No. He says to them, I would just say this. This is a, the second compassionate statement. He had compassion on people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he has the same mindset with his own 12 disciples. And they're scared to death. And so he spoke to them. No, no, no. Take heart. Uh, it is I. Uh, um, do not be afraid. Then the text tells us, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. That sounds like Mark 4. And they were utterly astonished. Let's go back to that statement. Take heart. How sweet. Take heart. Don't be afraid. But then there's this, uh, in, in the original language, it, it's, it, here it says, it is I, but it, it is literally, I am. I am. Boy, does that sound familiar from redemptive history? Going back when in the Old Testament and the Lord with Moses, he's like, I can't do this. He's like, no, 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 that's okay. I am. Oh, and by the way, tell the people I am. And in the Greek, the word I am that's stated here, it's called present active continuous. That means he is presently, actively, and continuously. That means that he was the I am back with Moses. That means that he is the I am here with the disciples in their situation. And it means he is the great I am right now for you and I. He is the I am. He is the great I am. What a cool statement. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. In our, ability, in our inability, Jesus is the great I am ability. Verse 51, he got into the boat with them. The wind ceased and they were utterly astonished, amazed and awed. Why? Why were they amazed and awed? Well, on one hand, duh. I mean, he was walking on the water. Now, who does that? Um, on the other hand, I ask again, why are they struggling to understand that Jesus could do this? They've seen him raise people from the dead. They've seen him do all kinds of stuff. Why can't he walk on water? Because ordinary people struggle to grasp the extraordinary Jesus Christ. And that's me and you. Friends, we can talk the talk and we can understand the, the terminology, but when it comes down to real life, when real life is hitting and real life is hard, those are the times that we need to be applying what we know, the awe and amazement of who Jesus Christ is. Put it in right now in the situation. And for you, maybe you're going through a hard time. You're being pressed into. You need to look at it as though this, your Savior is pressing into you. He's pushing you to help you understand your inability so that you would cling to his ability. 
It's not just about being amazed, awed by Jesus Christ. It's about the awe and amazement taking us to another place, taking us to a place that that one is the one, the great I am. He was then, he was then, and he is now. And I need to look at my life situation at the hand being pressed. He's trying to teach me something, grow me in it, work me in it. He is the great I am. He loves me. I am a sheep that is lost, but he is my savior. Rock on. That's what it's about. And that's what's happening here in the text. Uh, And then verse 52, I'll, I'll wrap it here. For they did not understand. By the way, that's written in an emphatic form. The word not is at the very beginning of the sentence. And that means that it's kind of saying, for they did not understand. It's being very clear. They did not understand about the loaves. What about the loaves? Who can do that? They didn't understand that yet. Oh, that gives me hope. I should give us hope. But their hearts were hardened. Whoa. What does that mean? I don't have the time. I'm going to leave that as a lunch discussion with a couple of pieces of information for you. The heart. The Jewish in the day understood the heart as this, not this, okay, in our culture. In our culture, the heart is where all the ooey-gooey emotion kind of thing, I love you with all my heart kind of thing. But in that day, it was the center of how we thought and processed. So really, biblically, the heart is up here between the ears, how we think and, and, and a control center of our lives. And so the heart is there. And so were they amazed up here? They were. Were they awed up here? They were. Did they understand up here? No. And and yet the Lord's going to be patient with them. He's going to continue working with them. That gives me hope. But there's this interesting statement, hardened hearts. Hardened, it means blind. It means dull. It means a, a level of ignorance. They weren't understanding. By the way, the word is in the passive voice. That means, oh, I, I don't quite understand this yet. That means that the hardening was done was an action done to them. They didn't harden their hearts. Their hearts were hardened. It's in the passive voice. That means the action is done to them. It's also the perfect tense. That means that it was an action that happened in the past that has ongoing ramifications of that action. I would put it this way. The Lord hardened their hearts not to grasp everything. Why would the Lord do that? Don't have time today. You can talk about it at lunch. But let me say it this way. They did not get it here, and 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 they did not get it here. And at the cross, they did not get it here. The resurrection happened, and they got it. Listen, the, the Lord had the whole hardened heart thing taken care of. He was holding them back. Oh, I might said, I'm doing what I said I wouldn't. He's holding them back until the Lord does the work that the Lord needs to do, and then they fully get it when the Spirit of God comes. But listen, friends, God, God's in control all the way down to the very heart of a person. Amazed and awed people in Jesus... It can't be left there because you're just made amazed and awed with Jesus. And everybody can be that. So many people in our world are amazed and awed with Jesus, but they do not have a relationship with him. They do not understand. They have not asked the Christological question. In light of my amazement and my awe, who is this guy? Have you? And by the way, I don't just mean for your salvation. I'm talking about for every day. Okay, three things to kind of bring all this together and we need to finish. And we'll have some songs and communion together. Number one, see people through the lens of compassion. See people through the lens of compassion. Friends, we need to have hearts like Jesus that see people with compassion. We understand theologically where they're at and we get off ourselves and the annoyance and the inconvenience that they are to us and we see them biblically as people in need. And we love on them. And we love on them. Because we're sent out to proclaim the good news. And we need to be doing that. Look at people through the lens of compassion. Secondly, see life through the lens of opportunity. Life is this ongoing opportunity for Jesus to show you and me our complete inability so that we can more understand his full ability. 
And in our inability, we place our faith in his ability. Even when I don't understand the situation or the scenario, he has it fully covered. And in my inability, I need to trust his ability. We generally look at Jesus through this lens of he's there to get me out of life pressures. That's not true. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus actually at times presses life pressures into us. Why? So that we can see our inability and his ability. He is growing us, perfecting us. That's why God is not a pampering God. God is a perfecting God. See life through the lens of opportunity. And lastly, see Jesus through the lens of the extraordinary. He is extraordinary and we are not. We are ordinary and the ordinary struggle to understand the extraordinary welcome to the struggle that we are all in. Pressing towards to understand him in salvation and in our sanctification. Listen, friends, you need to be asking, who is this Jesus and what is he doing? Not just for salvation for every day. So what's on your table? What has the Lord put in your life right now that you can be asking the question, who is Jesus in light of this situation and what is he trying to do? Well, biblically, he's trying to grow you. Biblically, he's trying to use you ministry to other people. Biblically, he may even be preparing you for something down the road, but do know this, he is all over this. See your inability cling to his ability. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness to us. I look at these guys and I just go, they're so like me. They're so like us. We struggle to grasp you, struggle to get you. Lord, you are so able and we are so unable and yet so often we get caught in thinking that we are able, but we're not. Lord, that humility, that face down place is a good place to be because we're in that place. We are reminded that you are the one. You are the great I am. You are the ability. And you have given us the capacity and the capability through you to be able to love on people, minister to people, to grow in you. God, you do not give to us what we cannot handle. But you do press into us so that we would see the one that can help us handle it. And that is you. God, I pray for the person in this room who may not know you as their savior. Lord, may they be asking that question of who is Jesus and may they move beyond the amazed and awed and into the reality of seeking the understanding that he died for their sin and is waiting for them to receive you as their savior. May they drive the stake in the ground and receive you as their savior. Lord, I also pray for those who are in Christ. These truths apply to our every day. You've got it covered. You're doing things. You are able. And we are not. And so we cling to you in faith is the great I am. You are awesome. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.